This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, well, we've got a special couple of hours, in fact, for you, because we spent, Jason spent, some time in Atlanta, and we really got to check in with some of the academic leaders, the business leaders that are there, and really got a taste of what's going on in that city, because it has become quite a hotspot. You know, Carol, I told people in Atlanta, I wasn't just being flattering, that if you want to get a look at the American economy, sort of where it is and where it's going, what a future city of America looks like, you really need look no further than Atlanta. As you say, the academic element, the tech element, even talked a little bit about Jamba. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we've got insights from the magazine. It's a double issue, so we continue on. Among those stories is one called Faked Alaska. It's the promise of a trans-Arctic data cable that would speed up the web for much of the planet. It raised hopes, it created dreams, it attracted investors, and created a company that was just, Jason, built on fraud. We're also going to look at the world of fees going way down, really down to zero when it comes to your brokerage account. But how are those firms making money? We're going to tell you the secret. They're making money on you. And we've got a company called Suited. No, Jason, it's not about a cool company that's making nice jackets and pants. Sorry. Uh, But it's actually about a company that's using AI and algorithms to recruit for Wall Street. And we're also going to have some of those fun conversations I had down in Atlanta. But first, we got to talk about the global economy. And when you try to understand where the U.S. may be going, where other major economies are going, one of the cautionary tales out there is Japan. So we talk often about the low rate and negative rate world that we live in, what happens after it. So we've got a country that really pioneered all of this to look to. Yeah, it's probably not something that you want to brag about necessarily, no. but Japan has been in this state for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And where they go next may portend what the rest of the world does next. Christina Lindblad is here with us. It's a great story in this week's edition of Business Week, all about Japan, Mr. Kuroda, and what he may end up doing next. What's going on there? Well, I kind of think of Bank of Japan now as a center of desperate innovation. Uh, because it's sort of like by necessity, they're leading the world, um, you know, into this new area and trying to basically, you know, nudge up growth. And so this is a country that brought us negative interest rates and QE, quantitative easing. Um, and now they're doing something that some people say may actually be impossible. Well, don't tell us that yet, because just remind us about how long Japan has been and why they are the poster child for negative rates and QE, because they're, they've been doing this for a long time. Right. So they tried uh, sending na- um, sorry rates negative, you know, and then when they didn't succeed, they did QE in 2001. Right. So way ahead of everybody else. Right. And remind us also, because I think it's important, the economic backdrop for Japan. Right. Because, you know, when we think back, you go back to the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, this was an economic behemoth that Americans were terrified of in in many ways. And the intervening couple decades have been ugly economically. Right. I mean, there was a big property bubble that burst, an asset bubble. And then, you know, deflation set in. And basically, I mean, they've been fighting deflation. And and it's not just deflation, but the country – is aging rapidly. So it's basically kind of downshifted. Growth has downshifted in a permanent way. And so they've been trying to, you know, kind of 
you know, sort of juice the economy by any means possible. Uh, and they've succeeded somewhat. I mean, there, there used to be sort of this pattern of falling into recession, you know, every other year almost. Um, but um, so this latest attempt, you know, basically is designed to to attack a problem that is basically, it's twofold. One is confidence, the confidence of the consume, consumer and business. So the issue is that yields on, low, on long-term bonds have fallen to a level where basically the message that, that's, that, that gives, you know, to the market, to consumers, is that out in the long term, we still don't see any inflation. We don't see much growth. So Bank of Japan wants to nudge up long-term yields also for another reason. There are 40 million pensioners in Japan, and that number is only going to keep growing. So those people are being penalized in their savings by those very low, low yields. The question, though, is how can you nudge up long-term uh, yields on long-term you know, um, maturities while at the same time telling the markets that you are you know, in a stimulus position and you want to keep short-term rates low? So it's an experiment. It is. But some people believe that it really cannot be done because the thing is that so BOJ has said they're willing to even stop buying certain uh, kinds of bonds with 20 mm -hmm. maturities of 20 years or, or and over. But the, the feeling is, though, what, when they do that, though, other actors may step into the market to buy. So then basically they'll be just foiling their attempts, you know, to sort of, you know, have prices go down and yields go up. I mean, the concern yeah. is, too, that by keeping long-term rates so low, the signal or message that sends to the world at large and certainly to their folks in their economy that – the outlook is not great. And yeah. so they tend to be savers rather than spenders, which That's is right. you can't jumpstart the economy then. Well, yeah. If you feel like the economy is going to yeah. flat on its back for that long, you got to think like, you know, is my retirement safe? Like, you know, I shouldn't be spending. But everybody's watching, right? Because right, I think about how often we talk on our show about this low rate or negative rate world in places we never thought would happen. The U.S. hasn't quite gotten there yet, but we do wonder how do we come out of this period of either negative rates or low rates, and how what, what's the outcome? And I guess we're all watching Japan. Well, I think what you said is we all used to be afraid of Japan as a competitor. I think now we're all afraid that we will become Japan. And that's Christina Lindblad talking about Bank of Japan. Mr. Kuroda, uh, we talked to Kathleen Hayes about him a lot. He's got a tough job. Yeah, he absolutely does. But when we're looking for maybe what does it mean to come out of a low rate or negative yield environment, we're all kind of keeping an eye on Japan to see how they do. We want to make sure our investors get the best deal possible, and that's called free, yeah. free trades. And so I've been on that pursuit, that mission basically, for almost 40 years, because I cut the commissions way back when, when deregulation was permissible, and I've been on that quest for now 40 years, so now we finally made it happen, zero commission, four transactions. Now you might have to pay for other things, but for transactions, it's zero. And that's Charles Schwab. We caught up with him earlier this week. He's a pioneer, clearly, in the discount brokerage space. And now there are some questions about how they make money going forward. For more on that fee fight, we bring in Mike Regan to talk about his story and what the elimination of fees really means. So, Mike, break it down for us. No one was shocked here, but there are some big implications. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly has been trending towards zero for years. I mean, when you think back to the 70s, it cost 200 bucks in commissions to trade a stock. I mean, it's mind-boggling when you think of it today. And Schwab came in. There was, it started with a really a regulation change in the 70s that sort of ended this, what they called fixed commissions, you know, fixed price commissions. And it allowed brokerages to set their own commissions. Uh, so Schwab said, I'm going to cut mine. Uh, he was a newsletter writer by then. He was running a, a brokerage. He said, I'm going to cut mine to $70. And the discount brokerage era was born. Obviously, when computers took over later in the 90s, it just chiseled away at those fees. Uh, I think it was like 13 bucks to trade on Schwab in 2005. Uh, it was less than 5 bucks most recently. But on the margins, new startups were coming in. Robinhood, the Robinhood app, allowed yeah. investors to trade for free. Uh, some of the brokerages started allowing certain ETFs to be traded for free. So it was clear that this pressure was building. Um, to me, I think the, the interesting thing, if you're a customer of one of these firms, is the important thing to ask is, well, how are they making money exactly if they're not charging me a commission? So that's a little bit of what we get into in the story there. Well, I think that was the question everybody asked when it first hit. We did definitely see their stock prices you know, go down, but it's like, okay, so how are they making money? Yeah. They do have other ways that they're There's, Yeah, money. don't worry. Don't worry about them. They're <laughs> not. Uh, you know, and the, the sort of line we use in the story is that if you don't know uh, how a company's making money, chances are you're the product, right? Yeah. It's what's been true of Facebook and Google, you know, free services, but it's you, your eyeballs and your personal data that is valuable to the companies. So for Schwab, it, one of the most, and for all the discount brokerages, um, one of the most important ways they make money is on the cash that you currently do not have invested in the stock market. They make money with your money. They make money with with your spare money, your yeah. dry powder, as they call it on Wall Street. So Schwab has something like $3.7 trillion <laughs> in client uh, assets on its platform. Uh, as of August, that is. And you know, about $265 billion of that is just cash. It's not invested in the markets. So a small chunk of a huge pie that allows Schwab to to invest it out um, and make money off of that idle cash. Um, and they do pay the customer, uh, client's uh, interest on that cash, but it's a it's a relatively low, uh, as much as about half of 1% uh, for big balances, as low as about 0.1%, so one-tenth of, a, of uh, 1%. Obviously, yields are low. Um, you can make better return on your cash elsewhere in, in money market funds, in uh, traditional bank deposit accounts. Um, but it's not convenient then for a trader. So, um, you know, people will keep some amount of cash in there in case they see a stock yeah. and all of a sudden they want to buy. And Schwab is happy to take it and, and reinvest it. Um, and there's other ways uh, they make money. I mean, they make loans too, right? To folks who want to do trades too. Is that part of? Right. Yeah. Uh, margin lending. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to leverage. Up, right. uh, there's services like that. Uh, if you want to short a stock, uh, they will loan you the securities and charge you a percentage on on that. Um, but one of the really interesting ways that all these companies make money, um, and it's been somewhat controversial in the industry, but it's called payment for order flow. So basically, what they do is, if if you or I uh, place orders to buy and sell certain stocks, um, there are companies uh, like Citadel, like Virtu Financial, Financial, uh, electronic market makers, or whole sellers, they call them. Uh, a few years ago, they would re be referred to more as high-frequency traders. They will basically buy up the order flow from these companies and match it uh, internally. So they, they don't even take it to the stock market. Uh, say, Jason, you want to uh, buy a stock for $10 and Caroline, you're selling it for $9.99. Well, they'll internalize that trade and they'll make a cent 
per share. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you do it enough over and over again, it those pennies add up. You see something like that, you start thinking about Flash Boys, and you start thinking about all these different sort of elements of Wall Street that are a little bit more mysterious to the everyday investor, less mysterious to you because you know so much about <laughs> the markets, but play this out for us. I mean, where does this end and does it lead to a different kind of collection of of firms that have the most power on Wall Street? Well, it certainly is a super competitive uh, industry right now. Um, and it that sort of electronic market making is a, very much a black box. It's yeah. hard to understand exactly what's going on it. But you have to sort of, you know, step back and compare it to, again, back in the days when it cost $200 to trade and stocks were quoted in uh, fractions rather than decimals. So you were paying a, a much bigger spread than one cent. You know, where you're paying the difference between an eighth and a quarter or whatever the, the quotes mm-hmm. were uh, priced in. So the overall trend, I think, has been great for the average show for, mm-hmm. for the investor. There are still questions on the margin about how this all works. Um but uh, again, if, you, if you're paying $0 for a service, um, how much can you really complain? Uh, there is a question on, uh, like I said, how are they making money? And I yeah. think it's just important for the users to know, to understand how uh, the companies are making money off of them. And that's what we try to set out to do in the story. Well, and I do think, especially the comparison you make with Facebook and Google and, and others probably does make people sit up a little straighter these days, right. sort of knowing what we know about, candidly, how our data is being used. Yeah, I'm right. listening to you talk, and I feel like this is totally a lesson in scale and users, right? Oh, absolutely. With the Amazon model, right? For how long did they not make money, but look at all of the users they now have and Absolutely. can tap into them for so many different things. And that's what this is about. Right. It's it's making a little bit of money on a large chunk right. of assets, which is, you know, that's why it's so competitive. They want to have, they want to gather all those assets as much as they can. Uh, and their power is in risk. having as many users and as much assets. Right. Absolutely. And the, sort of one interesting uh, angle that comes up as a result of this is all of a sudden, if it costs uh, someone zero to trade a stock is that going to influence them to trade more right. than that then that order flow that they're selling to these other mm-hmm. firms gets bigger they make a little bit more money on that a lot of financial planners will say you know being a sort of hyperactive trader isn't necessarily the best thing for your long term results that's Mike Regan. He keeps a watch on the financial markets, equities in particular, uh, for us here at Bloomberg. He wrote this story with Annie Massa. And uh, I think it's fascinating to kind of look at what's going on in the digital social world to get an idea of maybe what these online brokerages are up to. Yeah, I really understood the business more after talking to him and where they're going to be able, at least they think, make some money. It probably won't come as a surprise that as more Wall Street firms stress diversity and inclusion in hiring, that someone has come up with an app for that. Well, it's not really an app, but it is an AI-powered recruiting tool. Well, it's bringing the world of online dating to hiring (laughs) bankers. Eric Schatzker joins us from London with this story. It spans the globe, as you do, uh, Eric, but really taking technology to a very human-centric business. Tell us about Suited. Well, it's about time, you might say, Jason and Carol, that somebody brought artificial intelligence to the Wall Street recruiting process because this industry, for all its efforts to become more diverse and to become more inclusive, uh, is still dominated by white men who are typically 
uh, elite college educated. And that's going to need to change. It needs to change, not just because we live in changing times, but because these firms, like so many other companies, recognize that the bigger your talent pool, the better the quality of your recruiting and ultimately the better your employees. We're talking about investment bankers here, people who do mergers and acquisitions, people who do capital markets, people who do restructuring. But the same logic, as I say, that applies to companies worldwide applies to Wall Street. The challenge, of course, is volume. It's very difficult to fan out across hundreds of universities in the United States and open up the recruiting process to the degree that it can capture everybody unless you put technology to work. And that's what this tool is designed to do. It's a screening process that surfaces candidates regardless of their skin color, background, or any other traits that might sway a campus recruiter. So what specifically, tell us a little bit more, Eric, about this algorithm. I mean, all right, as you said, it takes out um, any kind of, you know, what color, their ethnic backgrounds, what sex, but what criteria do they... Unconscious bias is the word that's used in the recruiting industry, because if you sit down with someone, you might find that person appealing for reasons other than qualifications, Mm -hmm. That person may sound like you. That person may enjoy some of the same things you enjoy. That person may have played lacrosse. And if you played lacrosse, then you might be more inclined to want to hire that person, to want to work with that person. But that person may not have all of the right attributes to become a top-performing banker. He or she might just be appealing to you as a human being. And that's not really a good way to recruit. And so you bring artificial intelligence into the process by designing a model, and the model is built using the characteristics of the top performing employees at each firm, having candidates fill out comprehensive profiles, and then running those profiles against the models. That is the algorithm in action, and it spits out a score. The higher the score, the better the fit the candidate is for that individual firm, and the models vary by firm. Not every firm is looking for the same things. Not every firm values the same things. Not all bankers at one firm do the same things as bankers at another firm. And so you need to customize it to make it effective. And so, Eric, tell us about some of the founders here and where they came from, because it feels notable that these folks are are coming from firms who are trying to be competitive, maybe with some of the bigger bulge bracket banks trying to get an edge, which is how so many good ideas come about, right? That's a very good point. We know that firms like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and Citigroup have gigantic recruiting operations. But the smaller firms, firms like more specialized investment banking firms like Molis and Company, for example, or PJT Partners or Houlihan Loki, uh, need to find different ways to compete uh, in order to win those you know, M&A mandates or corporate finance mandates away from the bulge bracket banks. And so that's why they've embraced this uh, artificial intelligence powered recruiting tool perhaps sooner than some of the larger firms might have. They're a little more nimble. Uh, They're a little more creative. We've seen that, and that's how they've been successful in taking market share away from the big banks. And now they're taking this leap perhaps a little earlier than others might in an effort to be that much further ahead of the game and to raise their talent game so uh, so that they are, in fact, as good as they want to be. There are nine firms in total on the suited platform, 
it's likely to grow, but all of them qualify as independent investment banks. There aren't any bulge bracket firms there just yet. You know, what's interesting about this, Eric, and I think how often Jason and I, and I know you do too, we increasingly talk about the role of technology in the financial community on Wall Street, whether it's trading, algorithms, you know, having a bigger, bigger role. But when it comes to investment banking, you still need people involved, right? So what you want is you want the best people that hopefully are doing the biggest deals that ultimately bring in the most fees to the firm. This is a human capital business. There is no killer app. There is no shiny new product you know, that tantalizes the client. The client is persuaded uh, to do business with a firm and ultimately to do repeat business with the firm by the quality of the advice that that company gets. And that's Eric Schatzker talking about Suited, really taking us inside how Wall Street is thinking about a really important issue, which is how not to be a bunch of old white dudes. Yeah, exactly. Create diversity, bring diversity into uh, the recruiting pool and potentially uh, maybe get a better return when it comes to some of those investment bankers. The promise of a trans-Arctic data cable that would speed up the web for much of the planet raised hopes, attracted investors, and made a company that was built on dreams and fraud. This is a story that will kind of blow your mind a little bit. It will, and it's pretty complicated, to be honest. Austin Carr wrote it. He's here. He has traveled the globe in many ways for this story, gone to places that probably none of the rest of us (laughs) have been or very few of the rest of us have been. But let's start with a very basic question, Austin, which is, what's this cable all about? What's the dream that everybody's pursuing? Sure. So I, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the web is that everything's in the cloud. It, it's actually all underwater. The vast majority of the internet, anything you're streaming on Netflix or YouTube, it all goes underwater from different servers around the planet. So all these massive companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon have spent billions building undersea fiber optic cables that connect Asia to the Americas to Europe. And that's how all the data gets around the planet. They also all go along similar paths. They go through the Atlantic in the Pacific, places that are easier to construct. This company that I'm writing about called Quintilian came up with this idea to build through the Arctic, just like Shackleton wanted to build through Mm. the Northwest Passage, uh, because that's actually 4,300 miles shorter than other routes around the planet. Um, And that would speed up web speeds way faster than than what you see from traditional routes. So that, right. that was a big opportunity. And it sounds really logical, but you're dealing with the Arctic. You're dealing with the <laughs> Arctic. And I, so I spent time up in uh, Barrow, uh, Alaska, which is the, the northernmost community in the U.S. Um, What's it, it like? It's, I mean, it's freezing up yeah. there. I mean, it's ice for year round. In fact, the, one of the only reasons you can build this cable through the Arctic is because of climate change, which is unfortunate. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it warms open a little bit longer in the year. So they have a couple months to actually build this thing. Mm-hmm. But they have to use massive ships. It took 15 shi- uh, 14 ships to build this thing. They have this plow that's 55 tons that they had to trench under uh, underwater, bury a cable four meters deep into the seabed, uh, which was quite difficult. Make sure that fishing boats and, and icebergs don't disrupt this thing. And, right. and, and you're also dealing with blizzards and freezing temperatures. And you don't want to get stuck, right? You don't want to get stuck, yeah. It's called pancake ice. Yeah. Essentially, when uh, it looks like a pancake, it starts forming in, in the seabed uh, around the boat. And that's how Shackleton got that got crushed in there on his ship a hundred years ago in the Arctic was uh, ice formed around his boat. And that creates a prison of white. You can't get out. Wow. So to do something like this, it's quite an audacious goal. Usually need an entrepreneur with a big vision. There was one 
But again, it's a complicated story. Tell us about Elizabeth Pierce. Elizabeth Pierce is an unlikely founder for a company. She had a background in Alaska telecom companies, um, but she was also working in HR. She wasn't necessarily the someone who had a lot of executive experience who had done startups before, uh, but she saw this opportunity and she went after. And if there's one thing that uh, I talked to about three dozen people for the story who know her, they say that she's incredibly tenacious, just works around the clock 14 hours a day to the point that she would get frequently sick because she was working so much. Um, at the same time, it doesn't just take a, a tenacious entrepreneur. It takes hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion dollars to build this network through the Arctic to connect the Americas to Asia to Europe. Um, and that was the one thing that she didn't have uh, going into this. She had to raise upfront about $270 million just to build the Alaska segment mm. of the subsea internet cable alone. Uh, and I think that's really where this story begins. All right. But she did get the money. How did she get the money? Through forge contracts, you could say. <laughs> um, it, basically, what happened was for a couple of years, she was just really staking her career on this. She really just wanted to build this network, but couldn't find the funding. Uh, they'd partner with larger companies. They had uh, sought uh, funding from smaller Alaska telecoms, but never enough that that would reach a major capital level you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of injected capital. At the same time, a New York investor comes along, Cooper Investment Partners, uh, which are, is backed by a Ukrainian oligarch named Len Blotnovic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, run by uh, Stephen Cooper, who is the CEO of Warner Music Group. So pretty high profile investors. And suddenly they're taken by Elizabeth. And, and, and what, what is the reason for that? Because she starts showing them contracts that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, $600 million, in aggregate a billion plus of guaranteed revenue, right. recurring revenue stream of just people feeding off this network and what the ROI would be. And suddenly you have these massive investors funneling tens and, and hundreds of millions of dollars into the startup. But it wasn't out of the real. Blue. But those contracts, the For value- two years, it seemed like it was real. Uh, I think that was the thing. Basically, uh, Elizabeth Pierce, in addition to being tenacious, she's also incredibly protective and defensive of her business. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in the story where at a telecom conference, someone raised doubts. They, they joked that Elizabeth Pierce project sounded like it was out of a Jules Verne novel. And Elizabeth heard this through the grapevine and ran up to this attendee and just really ripped him apart. Right. And, and 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 that was the type of defensiveness that both people admired, but right. also came to raise a lot of doubts about what this project was really about. And so ultimately, it was kind of a good old-fashioned scam. I mean, she was literally mm-hmm. forging signatures and then faxing in these contracts and saying, hey, we won the deal. Amazing. It's, exactly. And, and this went on for several years where no one had any idea. This is a small team in Alaska, but they, even the other employees at Quintillion, the startup, did not know anything was going on. She really, she was the only one talking to investors. She would keep all her documents in a private filing cabinet, which one employee was scolded for once opening. She used her personal Google Drive to share all these contracts with their investors in New York, and no one else had the password to it. Um, so she very much was secretive about this. At the same time, that secrecy is very common at companies like Tesla and 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 Apple. You know, this doesn't raise too many eyebrows. It's just a it's a fast moving, fast paced, move fast and break things startup that Elizabeth Pierce was part of, part of, and no one had really realized anything was awry until the bills start going out. All right. And I want to get into that, but I do think about the big or wider, like kind of internet telecom industry watching this happening. And I'm just wondering if there was a lot of scrutiny Mm -hmm. about what she was doing from the outside. You know, that's the most insane part of this, because if you look at uh, the different communities that they were serving in Alaska, you know, the place that I went to in Barrow, this is a tiny place. They have basically two or three restaurants. Um, You know, one's called Arctic Pizza, and it's just that that's... 
for a lot, right? It's very expensive, I will (laughs) say, for the quality of pizza. Um, (laughs) At the same time, uh, you know, they somehow convinced these investors that there was massive tens of millions of dollars from these tiny native communities that was going to be poured back into the network before it was built out to the larger Asia to Europe pipeline. Um, And and for some reason, this didn't raise doubts with investors. Mm. With competitors, it did. I talked to a lot of competitors, including GCA, which is one of the massive telecoms there. And and, uh, Martin Carey, who runs the VP of business there, he just said the math made no sense. They thought it was crazy. How could you justify spending hundreds of million dollars to service essentially six or seven tiny Arctic communities in the north slope of Alaska? It just made no sense to them. Well, and that leads to another interesting element to this, which is this was not a classic, you know, big institutional investors kind of getting hoodwinked. There were a lot of people who, you know, put part of their life savings into this that Elizabeth Pierce also took advantage of, allegedly. the company, right? There was uh, at least two uh, individual investors. These are not, you know, high-profile institutional investors, but just, you know, people who knew Elizabeth Pierce, who were family friends. Or there was one former, uh, uh, we use a pseudonym in the story, Erica Blair, um, who had basically, she doesn't have a lot of money, but she cobbled it together for family and friends. She really believed in this Alaska pipeline for closing the digital divide in Alaska. And she invested about $40,000. Uh, Elizabeth Pierce pro- promised that she that that would be enough for to get her 225 shares in the company. It turns out those shares just never existed. She just mm. deposited it in in her uh, personal bank account. If actually, do you, do you mind? I, there's just one part of the passage which I yeah, really love in the please. story, which is this other investor that she took advantage of. Uh, on the same day that he wrote a check for a hundred thousand dollars to Elizabeth Pierce, she opened up, uh, according to court documents, a Wells Fargo account in her own name, her own retirement account. So she took his retirement savings and just made it her own, essentially. She invested $10,000 in her own, uh, you know, construction business that she ran on the side, paid off her credit card bills, at one point wrote her adult son a check for $500 and put in the memo just because. Uh, So where is Miss... Pierce. Well, the jig was up after these bills went up. There's there's only so long you have yeah. on paper, hey, this this telecom's going to pay us $100 million. This telecom's going to pay us $600 million. And so all these investors at a certain point say, all right, well, we're going to turn on this network. Let's get it ready. Let's start sending out these invoices. They were building out this thing in Alaska. They actually got it built. And so another employee, unbeknownst uh, to him that this was actually a fraud, starts sending out the invoices. Suddenly, customers get them, and they think, what? We never signed right. up for this. There was one uh, company in Alaska called MTA that uh, got hooked into this, and Elizabeth had committed them to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue commitment. That would have bankrupted the company. So you can imagine the, the shock of these small little telcos that many, some of them are nonprofits, suddenly getting these bills and thinking, whoa, 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 what, where did this Who come? agreed to this? Who agreed right. to this? Did I actually sign this? Um, and that's when her plot starts to really unravel and, and very quickly. And yet this is still a company that exists. It's got a new CEO, guy with a military background, uh, I believe, pretty serious individual. Absolutely. Um, so basically, once the FBI got involved, they arrested Elizabeth Pierce. She tried to cover up her crime. Uh, court documents show she actually that Google uh, Drive account that she shared. She dragged all of the contract files to the trash uh, overnight. And so when they, they logged on to see where the contracts were, it just said Elizabeth Pierce has deleted 78 files, which <laughs> is a, a pretty bad paper trail. Yeah. Um, but after she went away, they, they did bring aboard this new uh, CEO, George Tronsu, who's a former army vet, very seasoned telecom uh, executive who I got to spend time with. And I, I was super impressed. I mean, for as much as uh, difficulties as they have to deal with, he, he came aboard just days after she, she uh, resigned from the company and 
and was later arrested um, and essentially had to complete the fiber optic network in Alaska, uh, which took a ton of ships and, you know, all that laying of the cable underground uh, and then get all their customers back, go out to them and say, look, I know this is complicated. This has been terrible PR for you. We've gotten you embroiled in a lot of legal issues, but like, please believe in this network. It actually does work. And for what it's worth, it does work. That's Austin Carr. I love Jason when he does a story because it's such a deep dive. We tend to send him to a lot of cold places around the world, and that included uh, for this story, but uh, not something that we had heard a lot about. Uh, and it and the story really isn't over, right? Because they are starting to provide internet service for those folks in Alaska. We'll see where it ultimately goes. It's such a fascinating tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly a very strong character at the center of it all, but it's not a story that's over yet. Still more to come for sure. All right, so continuing my little road trip here to my hometown, Atlanta, this is a special interview in part because I grew up rooting for Georgia Tech and admiring the school. My dad went there low those many years ago. And we've got the new boss with us, uh, Dr. President, I should say, President Angel Cabrera. He is the president of Georgia Tech, the Georgia Institute of Technology here with me in our Atlanta bureau. And not a far commute for you. You're just across uh, I-7585 and new in the job. Uh, Coming back to the place where you did your graduate studies, you had been the president of George Mason. And so what have you learned one month into uh, your new job? I thought I knew a lot about Georgia Tech having graduated from here. I have a son who just graduated in uh, in May from in, in computer science. I've been involved with the Georgia Tech Advisory Board for years. And what I realized is that there is a lot more than I even imagined. Every week I find out a new thing, a new layer, a research project, a student activity that just blows me away. It's been unbelievable. This last six weeks have been just phenomenal. So a lot of moving parts, and I do think when you're president of a prestigious you know, institute university um, like yourself, how do you prioritize um, what needs to take up kind of, you know, what, what really gets your time, especially when you, you come into a position? It is indeed a, a, a very intense job with multiple pressures that pull you in many, many different directions. Um, but that's why this year, and that one of the most exciting things that I'm working on is to produce a new vision and a new strategic plan for the school. So I'm having a lot of fun. I'm, I'm having meetings with deans, with faculty members, with students, with elected officials, with business leaders to say, okay, what do we all want Georgia Tech to become over the next decade? So uh, in a way, I have uh, given myself the most part of this year to to answer that question. And uh, it's fantastic because I'm getting to to learn a lot more about the uh, institute that I, that I knew, and I'm getting people quite excited. So, uh, President Cabrera, when you first came into the studio here, you and I were talking about sort of literally where we're sitting. You know, our bureau is relatively, over the past few years, recently relocated to this midtown area. And this is your neighborhood in, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that Georgia Tech has done is really expanded eastward into this part of Midtown and really helped revitalize it. Talk about what you're hearing from business leaders here about what they need from Georgia Tech. 
So we are so close that I actually rode my bike from my office to uh, to come see you. And this is something that when I was a grad student here, I would have not done. Not a chance. Not a chance. And uh, really, uh, the Im- impact that uh, Georgia Tech has had in Midtown and in Atlanta at large has been phenomenal. I, even w- when I was in Virginia, I would send some of my colleagues here to see what was happening uh, in, in Atlanta. And it's a combination of not just uh, urban development and and really uh, triggering a revolution in what's going on uh, in in this area. But it's a revolution uh, grounded on uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, a beautiful piece of what happened in in Midtown in in the area we call Tech Square was driven by some of the biggest employers in Atlanta who decided to open their innovation labs right there to tap uh, the, the, uh, the innovation that was happening at the Institute. And how do you convince students to stay in Atlanta? I mean, how, what, what do you have to do? I know you have a co-op program that sort of gets them into those companies earlier, but you must worry a little bit about a, a little bit of brain drain after they graduate and go off to Silicon Valley or somewhere else, right? I, I have a perspective on that, which is not necessarily shared by a lot of people, uh, which in my view, even when many of our graduates leave and go work in, in London or in the Silicon Valley or in, in Boston, that is a net gain for Atlanta. That is social capital that we're developing, personal connections that can translate into business connections in, in unforeseen ways. But the reality is that more and more of our graduates choose to stay in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Atlanta has become an incredibly fun place to be and a place where many of our of our graduates even the entrepreneurially inclined uh, would prefer to have their new ventures here the cost of living the cost of hiring talent in atlanta uh, is far superior actually in lower than what you would find in places like uh, silicon valley mm-hmm. or new york city so so it's actually it's actually becoming a much better choice for many of our students this whole college admission scandal um, I'm just curious your perspective on it. Uh, <laughs> I it is it is sad that uh, that you know that, that people go through through that level of um, of even misconduct. Uh, to, to, there's this obsession with with uh, getting their kids into a number of uh, a number of schools. You know this country is blessed with hundreds and hundreds of wonderful institutions with very different profiles. There is a school virtually for everyone, and people who go to all sorts of institutions can end up doing very very well. So I think it's a little bit of a a reflection of an unhealthy aspect of the culture that we have created, and hopefully this will come down. To, uh, to a much better place uh, uh, in the future. And that's Dr. Angel Cabrera. He is the president of Georgia Tech. Carol, we were lucky to get him literally five, six weeks into the job. He's not unfamiliar with the institution. He earned his graduate degrees here, but back from being the president of George Mason and learning a lot. One of the things that really captured a lot of what's going on in Atlanta, he actually rode his bike over from the Midtown campus to our office in Atlanta. I love that part. All right. So when you think about Atlanta, increasingly, Carol, you're thinking about the tech scene and Tech Square Labs, the co-founder and partner. 
Dr. Paul Judge is with me. He and I were talking before we got started about the rich history of security, especially security-related technology startups and beyond startups here in Atlanta. So give us... Give us the scene because you're right in the middle of it. You have been involved in some incredibly successful companies. I was telling you that when we interviewed the CEO of Avertium yesterday, he was name checking Pindrop. You were the executive chairman uh, there, helped create that company. Very well-known name. CypherTrust is another well-known name here that you were involved in. What are you trying to do now? Because now you've got the next generation on your mind. I absolutely do. You know, after I co-founded Pindrop with VJ. Uh, I, I sat around and looked around the block and said, at Georgia Tech alone, there's another 20,000 VJs, meaning a lot of bright individuals that want to go take the chance to bring their own dream and idea to life. And so I really set out on a mission of how do we really encourage and, and support these aspiring entrepreneurs to go take that chance. You know, I said to Jason earlier, what I love about talking to individuals like yourself when you're making investments, because you invest as much in the company, if not more so in the entrepreneurs themselves, but you see trends that will be dominant down the road. What are you seeing? You know, one of the, the, the biggest trends I'm excited about in, in Atlanta is just really all the raw ingredients that we have here, right? I, I mentioned Georgia Tech, but more broadly, when you look at Morehouse and Spelman and Emory, there's 250,000 college students here that are bright minds that want to go change the world. And then you look right down the street, right? There's over 25 Fortune 1000s in town, right. and those real companies have real problems. And we could take those problems, we could spin them out into real startups. Right. And so we've been doing that. And then the third thing that we've been chasing is Atlanta is known for its music history Mm -hmm. and its film history, the culture. And so if you look at these, I call them the three C's, the companies, the colleges, and the culture. Right. As those three worlds come together and start to do so around technology and innovation, it unlocks like really the future, what the next decade of technology looks like here. All right. Well, I want to ask you about a different letter, and it's M, and that's money, and VC, and venture capital, because that historically, I know just enough to be dangerous about the scene here, and that for a while at least, was something that was lacking here. Certainly the homegrown uh, venture capital. You got some inbound from Boston or Silicon Valley. How is that element coming along, not just from a seed stage, but from those investors who can really take it through? You know, what has happened is after, you know, a number of successful companies started to grow here, uh, VCs start to call and say, hey, can we come to town? I want to meet more companies here. Right. So just last week, I had, you know, Chris Lyons from Andreessen Horowitz and, and Kobe from Upfront and Lowe from uh, Plexo Capital here speaking at a conference called A3C that we did. This week, there's another hundred investors in town for Venture Atlanta. Right. And so people are starting to make the journey and even do so on a monthly basis. Uh, and even starting to have their companies that are based on the West Coast open second offices yeah. here. Uh, because of how fertile the talent pool is here. Uh, Now, we still don't have a, call it a a top decile, top quartile, billion-dollar fund that's based in Atlanta. So we're working on that as one of our next missions. Uh, But there's certainly much more interest for investors to come to town and participate in the ecosystem. Well, Paul, you know what's interesting, too, is and I feel like when you talk to mayors or governors, um, everyone always talks about trying to create another Silicon Valley, right, or another startup community. And everybody says they're doing it, but it does sound like you guys actually are doing it, and there's it's having an impact. What's necessary for really a VC and a startup community to take off? What's necessary is, I think, you know, real entrepreneurs. It starts, you know, really with you build companies, 
that solve a real problem and, and create value, right? And create returns and create uh, wealth. And then you make the next generation. Uh, Jason was just talking about, you know, some of my good friends, Chris Claus and Tom Noonan, who created ISS, right? Jay Chaudhry, who created Cypher Trust. And, you know, those individuals continue to give back, uh, invest in the next generation of entrepreneurs, not just go retire into the sunset. Right. Uh, and then you need a rich pool of talent in which we're, we're blessed with here in Atlanta, right? We have this younger generation always coming up with, with new ideas. And so as long as you continue to support them, invest back in them, and open up the doorways, I think that's what it comes down to. It's not... Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, what the other interesting element, and I've really seen this being on the ground here, Carol, and, and I'd be interested in, in Paul's take on this, is this notion that this, I keep referring to it as this collision of industries, you know, the entertainment industry really yeah. come, coming up, the music industry, which has been very strong for a long time. I mean, Atlanta used to be, and I say this is a long time, Atlanta, like a little bit sleepy, but, you know, <laughs> you look at Midtown, you look at this area where we are. It's happened, you know, and you've got people who are living in town and they don't all look the same. You've actually got some real diversity of talent here. It feels like that's an element that may be attracting more and more people. Do I have that right? No, absolutely. I mean, you could have a very multifaceted life here. Right. I find myself in a room the other day and you got a one moment I can be talking to Hala, who's the CEO of the Metro Chamber. And 20 minutes later, talking to two chains and 20 minutes later, you know, talking to the president of Morehouse. Right. And, you know, when you have those types of intersections happening. Yeah, it's, a, it's an environment not only to kind of work, but also to create a family and have a good balanced life. I got to say, Carol, I think that is the first time we've had a 2 chains name drop on this show. So that's I'm, I'm, I'm checking that box. It's sort of like, you know, when you popped up on John Oliver the other night, like the things are happening here on this show. And this is a big moment. But you're totally right. I mean, it is amazing when you start to see this sort of critical mass that, that feels like it's happening here. So what's missing? What's next? What's next? I think it's really bringing those three worlds together. They exist here. Uh, we're, we're rich in each one of them, but they're still kind of on the opposite sides of the dance floor, like yeah. at a high school dance, right? And so as they start to integrate more and, you know, the, the large companies do more business with the startups yeah. and the startups do more business with the, the you know, the, the entertainment uh, leaders, those are the things that are going to unlock the future. I mean, if you think about how much culture drives consumer behavior and drives consumer technology acquisition, when those come together, I think that unlocks Atlanta's next part of its journey. That's Paul Judge, the co-founder of TechSquare Labs. And I love talking to these kinds of individuals because you get an idea of you know, where investor money is going, what might be some of the technologies, the companies, the individuals that are really going to be shaping our future. Well, and it's interesting, too, because this is literally and figuratively at the core of where Atlanta is going. It sits right in Midtown, but it also has a bead on where future growth, future jobs, really the future of the local economy is coming from. You got the juice. All right, so Carol, I have got the best variation on Sipper Sweat going on. This is like a hybrid because Jeff Henry is here. He's the president of Jamba back with us. He's here in Atlanta because that's where he's based. The last time Jeff was with us, as you recall, Carol, we were talking about, I mean, essentially a, a reboot or a really a renovation right. maybe of the whole Jamba brand. Tell us where you are in that process. Yeah, so we were together about four months ago, and it's been a, an exciting summer. Uh, we are well into our kind of rebranding process. Uh, it, it's kind of a threefold process. One is kind of updating our menu. 
uh, in many regards to increase the number of plant-based offerings as well as reduced sugar offerings. Uh, and we updated our menu in June, and then we updated it again uh, two weeks ago featuring oat milk. And oat milk, again, is a, a great uh, plant-based alternative yeah. milk, lower in sugar, lower in uh, cholesterol, and it's, we've got a, n- a number of smoothies. You can swap it in. So that's just one example of kind of where we're going on that kind of lower sh- sugar So journey. on the oat milk front, because as you know, as you learned last time, I'm a little bit obsessed with this. Do I have it right that it's like a little bit better for the environment too? Some would say that for sure, okay. yes. <laughs> uh, but also we just think for just from an overall nutrition yeah. standpoint that it's, just, it's delicious tasting. It's a great plant-based alternative. And again, it's lower in sugar. So if you're looking to kind of cut back on the sugar in your diet, it's a great option. Hey, Jeff, what's really guiding you in terms of product innovation? Is it nutritional? Is it caloric? Like what are the metrics that really drive what you guys want to offer on your menu? Yeah, so we're certainly, uh, our innovation is certainly science-based. So we have in-house culinary experts. We have in-house registered dietitians. uh, And so we are kind of pulling together a variety of kind of insights and data to make those decisions. Um, Certainly, it's about making sure that we have a great breadth of offerings because everyone's, you know, in different places in their own wellness journey. Uh, And so we just want to make sure that we have the right offering to reach as many people with a delicious product uh, that we can. All right, so tell us about, what you're learning vis-a-vis the consumer. And I'm especially interested in what you're learning here in Atlanta. You know, we're sitting here in Midtown Atlanta, which I feel like, and, and Carol, I'm sure is just sick of hearing me say this, but it's it's a little bit of a microcosm, I feel right. like, of America in many ways, of consumer taste. You've got a bunch of companies, big and small. You've got a big university, Georgia Tech, right around the corner this has got to be an interesting lab for you. What are you learning? Yeah, it's, Atlanta is a great marketplace. Again, I've been a resident of Atlanta for about 13 years. Uh, but for us in Jamba, you know, Jamba has about 800 stores in the U.S. Uh, and over 400 of them are in California. So we, our presence in the East is actually a lot less. And yeah. so we're looking at, at Atlanta as a great opportunity to re-enter a market uh, in a new way and uh, doing that through both company-owned store, a few company-owned stores as well as franchisees. We're actually now 99% franchised organization, mm-hmm. so we're heavily franchised. Um, and we actually are opening up a couple of stores here in Atlanta. We actually opened up one three weeks ago at Tech Square. Right. Uh, and we're actually opening up one in three weeks right near the Beltline, which is also a big re- major redevelopment here in Atlanta. Right. Uh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. But I, what I'm curious about too, and I know we've talked about this, I think, previously, but I do think about this space in general. Um, people are jumping on, and rightfully so, I feel like the wellness, you know, bandwagon. So there are more and more choices out there for consumers. What do you make of the competitive landscape? Yeah, I think it's good to be in a competitive category. Uh, we certainly you know, respect and appreciate our competitors. I think we differentiate our brand through kind of also our operations because uh, we make great tasting smoothies. We can also do it in, uh, in with great speed. And I think, Jason, you mentioned you'd like to go to Jamba in the airport. Yep. So you probably see three or four people online and you're starting to wonder, do I want to get in that line, right? right? So speed of service is critically important for us. Uh, again, great tasting products are, are critically important for us. And just the, the brand's positioning. I mean, Jamba has always been fortunate as the leader in the category. Next year will be our 30th year. Uh, we've been fortunate to always kind of get picked up in pop culture, be it, uh, you know, Hollywood movies or kind of uh, music. And it gets a lot of brand recognition to help us stand out in the crowd right. uh, and help us differentiate ourselves. I want to just follow up because you guys do Jamba at home, right? 
Yes, we do have a few uh, licensed products as well. Uh, and certainly with Focus Brands now as our kind of parent corporation, we'll continue to look at that space. But there are a couple of products uh, for Jamba, both at home as well as kind of uh, fruit snacks on the go. Is that and a big is that big opportunity, though, for you guys? Because I just think if you get people at home, too, it just kind of translates back and forth to, you know, your retail stores and so on and so forth. Yeah, we we definitely think it's an opportunity. I, I think it depends upon kind of which category you're, you're talking about. Is it smoothies? Is it juices? But certainly helping build the brand outside the four walls of the store or the kiosk in the airport is definitely a big opportunity for us. All right. So geographically, where do you go next? So again, we're fortunate to have you know a strong, strong brand presence in the Western U.S. Yep. We got about 600 or 800 stores are in the West Coast or kind of Southwest, with about 200 here in the Eastern U.S. So we are looking to kind of both grow store units infill locations in the West, and then a, a number of markets here in the East. Uh, certainly Atlanta is one of them, but mm-hmm. certainly the Southeast, there's a lot of opportunity for Jamba to grow. And that's Jeff Henry, the president of Jamba, in such an interesting position, Carol, relatively new to the job with some big vision. It's private equity backed for where this market could go. I mean, I love their smoothies, but he's got much more on his mind. All right. You know, Carol, sometimes I really do get the best assignments and (laughs) I do wish you were here because Jim Chastine is here with me. He's the CEO and this is the best title ever, licensed bootlegger (laughs) for ASW Distillery. He's here with me in our Atlanta bureau. Jim, great to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Carol. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. And I have to say, Carol, shout out to Dennis Kelly, my dad, who is a local here. And he was the one who actually introduced me virtually to Jim because he tasted some of his whiskey and... He's a fan. And as you know, Carol, Dennis Kelly has a discerning (laughs) palate. So, Jim, tell us what you're up to, because this is super cool. Man, we have had just an awesome time. Uh, I'm I'm a former finance guy, Uh, used to be securities licensed. And uh, my partner, Charlie Thompson, and I were roommates at Georgia. And uh, we uh, allegedly had a little hobby uh, making whiskey. And... um, we uh, kind of figured out a way to turn it into a career and, and just ended up at the apex of just a lot of trends that very candidly are much larger than us that we yeah. we didn't see coming but have benefited from, you know, the rise in the craft movement. You've had craft beer and now craft spirits are coming along on the tail of that. Uh, the foodie culture, agriculture, everybody cares where their food's coming from. And so the experiential nature of, you know, meeting your dad and coming into a distillery and showing him how we make things and showing him two beautiful pot stills here in the middle of downtown Atlanta, you would not have seen. If you were asking a distiller 100 years ago if that was possible, no way. No way. Not a chance. So the progress that's been made on these trends and just we've benefited from a ton of that stuff. Why no way? Uh, Well, that's a long answer. I mean, you've just got a lot of history in the South. Um, You know, it's kind of what we're known for is the people are very nostalgic about the 40 Fords running from, uh, you know, the revenueers here. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. a dirt road called Piedmont back in the day. I mean, this was all happening yards from our current distillery where you had the trippers coming down from the mountains uh, sending booze here. And now we're sending booze the opposite way, which is amazing. <laughs> and so tell us about that that sort of mega trend that, that you referenced, which is we are at this moment and Carol, you and I talk about it so much, whether it comes to food or fashion. Right. Like We want to know where stuff comes from at this point, and we really value understanding the story. 90% of our guests do our tour because they care about 
what we do, there's a, it's just a big old chemistry set down the road. You know, we have a ton of Georgia Tech folks in town that, you know, took chemical engineering. We have a ton of ag guys from Georgia that want to come in and see how we, you know, become alchemists and, and spin, uh, you know, straw into gold. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's what people, uh, you know, in the South is cool right now. People are watching what we're doing here and saying, man, the trends here, uh, food, beverage, right. uh, restaurant in the South is just, you know, really on a global stage right now. And we've benefited from that tremendously. Jim, how do you get noticed, though? Because I feel like there are a lot, like you said, kind of the craft uh, trend that we're seeing when it comes to all kinds of alcohol. And how do you get yourself noticed in what is increasingly becoming a crowded space? Same thing we do in any, uh, you know, you got to distinguish yourself with quality. Um, It's a little bit overwhelming right now, but people lump us in with beer, but we're, we're literally 25 years behind craft beer. So there are a lot fewer distilleries out there. And uh, you, you, nationally, we entered uh, these uh, spirit competitions. The biggest by far in North America is the San Francisco World uh, Spirit Competition. Uh, last year, we came home with five medals, including a double gold for our duality double malt whiskey, which, as you know, robust as the Georgia spirit-making tradition is, that was actually the first time a Georgia whiskey had ever uh, received hmm. that honor uh, in San Francisco, which was huge for us. And then this year we came home with another five medals, including a gold medal for our um, single malt Burns Night, uh, which is a traditional barley single malt, uh, similar to a Highland style whiskey. And, you know, for a tiny little distillery, you know, under five-year-old distillery in Atlanta, Georgia, to win a gold medal for a single malt in the single malt category got us a little bit of attention, and that was huge. So talk about distribution, because obviously if you want people to be fans of it, they got to drink it, they got to be able to find it. How do you pull that off? Well, uh, the brewers and distillers a couple years ago in Georgia got the laws changed, so we can now sell direct. We were the last state in the union that couldn't sell directly out of a tasting room, and that is by far our biggest mouthpiece. Your dad's already brought friends in, you know, to show them that, and we look at it as it is a way to make money, but it's really more of a marketing uh, strategy for us to bring people in. We love on them. We teach them something. We never talk down to anybody. And that, that I think, from the laid-back tradition of spirits has really uh, been a way that we've distinguished ourselves. Is, you know, we understand there are a lot of new spirit drinkers that need to learn something, and you would never walk into our tasting room and have somebody you know, poo-poo on something you said or a question you asked or something like that. They would... We're going to try to emulate what the craft beer guys mm-hmm. did an awesome job of, which is to bring new consumers into the market by educating them and be- becoming fans. Part of the part of what you're selling, I think, in some ways, and what's going on in Atlanta is it's a different lifestyle in many ways. And I've heard it, you know, and I think we've heard this all day long. There's something kind of special going on here where people are living kind of a different life. I agree with that 100 percent. And in it. This is purely just you know me speculating, but I believe as a city we lost a lot of identity after the Olympics. I yeah. mean, there was so much of an influx of people from all over, and we have benefited a ton from people moving here. But it kind of diluted the culture, and now what you're seeing is it fight its way back through the food community, through this beautiful nature that we have. I mean, you are in ag land, you know, twenty or thirty minutes yeah. outside of town in in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And I do think that ties really well into our uh, story. That's ASW Distillery CEO Jim Chasteen. Listen, I love talking to these individuals, Jason, that have uh, created um, a spirits business. As he said, we're continuing to see so many different companies get into this business. I mean, he's a financial guy, right? 
Yeah, he was. He had a financial background. And it's interesting to see all these different industries collide. I know a place. All right, so this is the perfect follow-on, I feel like, in many ways to the conversation we were having, because this is next level in a lot of ways. The Gathering Spot, Ryan Wilson is the founder and CEO. He's here with me in our Atlanta Bureau. Ryan, great to have you with us. Glad to be here. All right, so I've wanted to talk to you since I started reading Atlanta Magazine and Fast Company, I believe, sort of about what you're up to. This is a members-only setup, (laughs) no jacket required uh, in a lot of ways, Um, but you're reading Really, I think, an emblem of what's going on in this city right now, this collision of all these different industries. How'd you get this idea? So the, the entire uh, thing started when I was in college, right? I, I There was a community that was there that I really didn't appreciate while I was in undergrad. But when I went to law school, I really missed everything about the experience. And if you think about it, when you have people that are from all over the world that are studying different things, that network kind of just goes away immediately. And so with one of my college roommates, we started talking about that problem. And the gathering spot was what resulted out of the conversations. So tell us a little bit about how it works and who can be, right? Because it's not just open to everybody, right? Tell us a little <laughs> bit about who gets to be a part of that community because it is still kind of selective, right? It is selective. But I mean, the litmus test for us is really not just what you do, but who you are. The most important question that we ask in our interview process is what animates you outside of the office? And like, we really care about the answer to that question. Uh, You'll see a little bit of everybody in the club. The youngest member is 23. The oldest member is 88. And so I I tell people all the time, we are in the community business, not the space business. Um, We're looking for opportunities to bring the membership together for professional reasons and then a lot of times socially as well and that's been part of the secret of success well and part of what you do is you bring in interesting folks from you know your broader network uh, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, you know obviously someone very familiar to our uh, listeners and certainly familiar to folks here uh, in Atlanta what are you trying to give them with those types of programs I think it's important to explore what's going on in the city and going on on in our nation I mean uh, the club because we're not uh, tied to any particular industry, we have the ability to really explore any and every topic. And so absolutely right. Leader Abrams will come and give a conversation. And then the the next day we might be doing a midnight brunch. And for us, that's, that's how communities are formed, both business reasons, but then also for social ones. Well, and it's interesting. And, and you know, Jason and I spend so much time, Ryan, talking about the importance of diversity <laughs> in whatever you do, diversity of thought, uh, and how important it is to really improving the operations and the outcome and the results of any institution. And it sounds like that's certainly a driving uh, mission within you guys. I mean, no, the, the future of communities for us, I mean, they, they, they look different. Um, and you, it's important for us as a, as a business to make sure that we're super intentional about making sure that everyone really feels at home inside of the club. Uh, one statistic that I'm really proud of is that 60% of our membership base are women. Uh, to us, that's what the future of private clubs should look like. Um, those, these, these spaces have not been spaces that traditionally have had an overrepresentation of women. And so we, we go really out of our way to make sure that when there are groups um, even professions. We, we looked last year and found that we didn't have enough educators in the space mm. and, and went out and made sure that there were, there were more people that represented uh, that space in the city inside of the club. And so that mix is, is a part of what, again, makes the club special on a day-to-day basis. And that's Ryan Wilson, CEO of The Gathering Spot, Proud Hoya. He and I caught up about that, our shared history at Georgetown University, Carol. But such a great idea that he has. And when you hear about all the different types of people who are intersecting at this place, you get a really good sense of what Atlanta is all about. 
Right. And he's coming to D.C. and L.A., so he is expanding. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. You can get that at iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course at Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's a double issue and it's on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.